Hey everyone, in this episode, we'll be mentioning rape and sexual assault, so listener discretion is advised. He was part human, part computer, and one hell of a gambler. Today on Dumpster Book Club, we're reading Fireship by Joan D. Vinge. I'm Sean. And I'm Mimi. And this book is really good. we ever bothered giving spoiler warnings because usually no one else has ever or will ever read these books but this one is worth reading so if spoilers is something that you're concerned about the way like bits of information are slowly revealed throughout the narrative and it really changes the whole story and what's been going on this deserves the spoiler warning if you're interested in reading either of these books should we do the who this book is for at the beginning? That would be an interesting way to do it. We could do that. I guess we'll just say that there are two novellas in this book. One is called Fireship. And if you like cyberpunk, you'll probably like it. And the other is called Mother and Child. And if you like science fiction, you'll probably like it. Yeah. Well, do you want to talk about the cover? Okay. Cover is very eye catching. We've got bright yellow, red, orange, a cool sci fi font that says Fireship across the, the whole top. The book mainly advertises Fireship, and in a very tiny <laughs> font at the bottom, it also says that Mother and Child is in this. And the illustration here, I think, is from the Fireship story, also. Yeah. And it is, I think, the alien casino? Yes, it... Were there any aliens? No. I don't think I so. I don't remember any aliens at all in Fireship. So we've got, like, a big tentacle man with eye stalks wearing, like, a fur cloak. A, a bug guy hanging out on the floor. There's... Another thing that is like a slug with tentacle arms, but he's wearing like a Hawaiian shirt and <laughs> pants with a belt on it. <laughs> uh, it's got like a visor and just hitting the slots all day. <laughs> yeah, it looks like they're all around some kind of roulette table, although it wasn't until just now that I figured out that that's what that's supposed to be. <laughs> wow, one of them is a big crab thing. <laughs> It's very 70s, too. Yeah, all the architecture. and It looks like Barbarella, kind of. Yeah. So I had never heard of Joan D. Vinge in my life, but I have heard of Werner Vinge. Yeah, I also have never heard of Joan D. Vinge. Based on this cover, I was not at all expecting this book. <laughs> 
<laughs> to be as good as it was. So, yes. Joan D. Vinge, also Joan Carol Dennison, was married to Werner Vinge, who wrote A Fire Upon the Deep, but they divorced, and I think later she married an editor. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. Um, she also won a Hugo Award. That's good. Uh, that means maybe the Hugos do mean something. Or- <laughs> Uh, and she's got a few, like a couple of bigger series, I think, including one called The Snow Queen. I actually have seen those, just that the covers look like really bad YA, so I never <laughs> picked them up. But maybe, maybe Joan D. Vinge just is like a blind spot for us and not actually the science fiction world. Yeah, well, I think some of her other works have also been nominated for a ton of awards. In 1981, she almost won a Balrog. (laughs) (laughs) So I think she was somewhat famous initially in her career because she got a reputation as being one of the few women authors writing hard science fiction. Not pictured here, I guess. Right. And then even when she was writing hard sci-fi, I think they her stories also included more of like soft science issues like the social structures and gender roles right. and stuff like that. Turns out she has a BA in anthropology and she worked as a salvage archaeologist. What's a salvage archaeologist? Is that like sunken ships and stuff? Because that'd be cool. You know, that's what I thought it was, but... It might be the same as survey and excavation that you do before a construction project. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not just really good thrifting. (laughs) So I'm not sure exactly what kind of archaeology she was doing, but I think that the degree in anthropology really comes through in these stories. Right. Robert Heinlein dedicated a novel to her. Starship Troopers. <laughs> <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> um, that one with all the incest. Not that one either. <laughs> most of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one called Friday that I've not heard of or read. When I was looking through her other works that she's done, I saw that she wrote Cowboys and Aliens, and I was like, wait, did she write the script for this? And I looked into it, and no, it was just a novelization. Jeez, that that seems sad to to be... Of that, like, what, 2010 movie or whatever? Yeah, starring Harrison Ford. But then I found out in 2002, she was in a horrible car accident and had brain damage and wasn't able to write for five years and that was the first thing that she wrote after coming back Mm. from that i found one website that claims that she makes and sells dolls but i was not able to find (laughs) any other information on what that means you couldn't find an etsy to buy them no and uh no corroborating evidence for this this (laughs) claim that's about it (laughs) You ready to talk about Fireship? The title novella of this two novella collection. I had some initial thoughts right away about the tone of Fireship because 
we kind of alternate between cool guy cyberpunk noir and sometimes it's just really goofy sometimes it's kind of a mix of both we also get like these really weird alternations between like first person narrative and then third person narrative and all of that makes a lot more sense once we kind of figure out our main character our narrator is usually ethan ring sometimes michael yarrow and rarely Ethanac 5000, but they are all the same person. Michael Yarrow's brain was merged with the latest, highest tech computer built for security cracking, the Ethanac 5000, and that experiment broke his mind, so they created a third personality that's a mix of both their... that's a mix of both of them. Yeah, it's it said that Ethan Ring, together, they have, like, the best qualities of both and none of their flaws. Yeah, like Blade. (laughs) In the process of this experiment, he accidentally cracked into the United States super security CIA something, made that security system sentient, and then drove it crazy. By feeding it his his emotions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he is a fugitive from the U.S. <laughs> hiding on Mars in a giant luxury casino resort on Mount Olympus. Right. <laughs> is everyone up to date? Everyone. <laughs> Yeah, and in the story, Mars is like a like new human colony, I guess. There was a lot of little details mixed in that mm-hmm. I liked where, you know, being on this colony, water is more valuable than jewels. And it, there was a little bit of a Dune vibe where right. people are able to do displays of wealth using water. Or like in the Diamond Age, which is a Neil Stevenson book, where in the future, glass is more valuable than diamonds because it's very easy to produce diamonds, but not glass. Yeah. I mean, Dune is all over both of these books. And Neil Stevenson is definitely pulling from a lot of the same resources that Joan is. Right. Once you understand the main character, which is, it doesn't take that long. It's a couple pages before you figure it out and you get in the rhythm of it. I really like the dialogue, both internal and with other characters. I think it's very clever and witty and both plays in and makes fun of the cyberpunk genre. Right, right. Because then Joan can, she can both kind of mock it or play with it, but at the same time have all those things that we do all love about noir Right. One of the examples I wanted to share was when we're kind of introduced to like the femme fatale type character, Ethan Ring, where he's narrating and he goes, I knew that if she wasn't the one I was looking for, then whoever it was could go to hell. But then he walks up to her and blurts out, I love you, Lady Luck. <laughs> You're very impulsive and goofy <laughs> yeah. and cowardly. Yeah, and just Ethan Ack is just trying to keep him in check. (laughs) 
Okay, so at this casino, having a computer brain, Ethan Ring easily wins 50,000 Sias. Which is a lot. It's a lot of money that he's got now. And when he does, he catches the attention of this femme fatale who happens to actually be looking for Michael Yarrow. Because no one else knows what the heck happened with Michael Yarrow or how he cracked the U.S. thing and with the Ethan Ack 5000 computer. So she just, through the whole book mostly, she speaks to him as if he's Michael Yarrow and is so confused trying to figure him out. And Yeah, he has a reputation now as a super hacker and who, like, did this big theft of technology, which... Technically, he did, but what people don't realize is that um, before they were merged, he was like a really like low-level bad programmer. <laughs> yeah, he was a guinea pig <laughs> yeah. for an uh, experiment. And uh, oh, I guess we should say that the Ethanac is still a separate computer. He carries around, and it's plugged into his spine with a USB cord. And if he unplugs it, both Ethan Ring and Ethanac are turned off. And it's just Michael Yarrow. But Michael Yarrow is such low self-esteem and like a bad self-image. He kind of hates being himself. And he prefers to be, to let Ethan Ring kind of run the show. Yeah, and Ethan Ack also, when they're unplugged, has no sensory inputs. Right. So they like strongly prefer to be together and don't really function at all separate. And Yarrow's totally cool with this because he's a anxiety-ridden mess (laughs) all the time. Uh, um, Okay, so this woman who approaches them in the casino is Hanalore Takashi, and she's from Free Thought, Inc., which is a mercenary think tank. And she's there to blackmail Yarrow into working for them to create like a a backdoor in the security system for the casino, which is owned by someone named Kabir. And this is somehow related to the political situation on Earth. One of the people who wants to do it is from a nation that is being exploited by bigger countries, and Kabir is somehow involved with this. It's there, but Ethan Ring kind of doesn't pay like he doesn't really give a shit he just wants to get out of this blackmail situation so you we only kind of get a vague idea of why it's happening yeah when he finds out what what her plan is here he's like oh so you're a fink then (laughs) and he calls them finks throughout the rest of the story then we're introduced to the rest of the finks in their party right instantly put us puts us into the 60s (laughs) <laughs> Very early 70s. So we have uh, Cephas Netebi and Basil Krauss, who are also part of this blackmail scheme. Yes, I feel like those two, they have more skin in the game. Maybe they're from this country or are fighting this war or something. And they've hired Takashi, who was then blackmailing Yero to do what they need. So I guess eventually Yarrow like tells them, right, or t- at least tells Hanalore that 
kind of what his backstory actually is. Yeah, and even afterwards, she still can't really get a handle of it. He kind of describes how he just having his weird anxious emotions and forcing this other computer to experience them <laughs> how that's that's the how ultimate he, hacking that's how he brought down big brother basically hanelor describes that as a fire ship which is when you set a ship on fire and then sail it into the enemy fleet right i think this is how we will defeat the machine uprising we'll just give them emotions <laughs> <laughs> then they'll be as worthless as we are. Oh my gosh. So the first step in the plan is they have to find Kabir's access point, which is where he logs into the internet or whatever the 60s cyberpunk version of that is. <laughs> and before Ethan Ring, Yarrow, Ethan Eck can do that, he is captured by the casino's security officer who already knows basically what's going on. And security officer is named Salad. <laughs> uh, but he is all meat. Don't be <laughs> fooled by that name. <laughs> and Salad brings him into his security office, which is basically just like a historical torture museum. Yeah, he has all these ancient torture devices on display with little plaques saying yeah. they are. <laughs> Like an Iron Maiden and stuff like that. He has a bunch of thumb screws on uh, his desk he yeah. just twiddles with. And I think there was a really funny line later where Ring refers to him as the Marquis de Salad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and when he's in this torture chamber slash office, the internal monologue is really funny because Ethan Ring's really trying to keep control and Yarrow's just like, ah, the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, it's like, it's easy for Ethan, for Ethan Act to say that it's no big deal because <laughs> yeah. it's his body that's getting thumb screwed or whatever. He pretty much folds immediately and agrees to give up all the free thought people. And, um, but Salad doesn't know who he is, is his problem. Yeah, and he's able to convince Salad that his brain briefcase is actually an heirloom kidney machine <laughs> <laughs> and he can't be unplugged from it or he'll die. I guess Salad is working for Kabir and Kabir wants to find out who hired these Finks. So they kind of force Ring to become a double agent. The plan is for Ethan Ring to tell them where the access point is, and that place will just be Salad's office, where he'll be waiting for them. Right. And then he'll torture them, supposedly. <laughs> so Ethan Ring is kind of in a bind because he doesn't want to get tortured, uh, but also he can't have his identity revealed. Yeah, so he's just going along with the double agent plan until he can think of another way to not have his new friends all be tortured. The thing that comes along to help him figure out this problem is some vegans. <laughs> the veggies. There's like a like a militant vegetarian sect that are on vacation at this casino and he manages to start basically a bar brawl and get everyone arrested so that they can't go to salad because they're in jail. <laughs> and the free thought people 
unplug him from the Ethanac. So it's just Yarrow. And he becomes like all snivelly, like <laughs> just such a nerd. And he immediately just blurts everything out. <laughs> yeah. He explains the whole thing to them. <laughs> He, yeah, confesses immediately. Hanalura's like, you know, why didn't you tell us this stuff before? And Yero's just like, the quote is, I wanted to tell you, Lady Luck. I really did. But I got outvoted. Ring's kind of paranoid. You gotta remember his background. Sometimes he don't know who to trust. And Ethanak, well, he likes to do things the hard way. <laughs> During this process... They also do find where the access point actually is. It's in this obscure temple on Mars. It's like a religious yeah. sanctuary. Supposedly, Kabir is becoming a monk in this obscure Christian sect. Which is classic cyberpunk, is finding some Luddite religious sect and then joining it secretly. And then you find <laughs> out that there's some special thing that's controlling this internet thing that's killing everyone's brains or something. Yeah. But really, there's nothing here. It just turns out Kabir is, that's where he's hiding his USB port and... He eventually finds it because a helicopter lands and he follows whoever came in the helicopter. And then he finds the computer. Yeah. Once he gets into the secret computer room, it's hacker time. I think I really liked uh, how I felt like this managed to convey a feeling of hacking without being completely embarrassing. I mean, wasn't this written when computers were abacuses? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like... Compare this to something like Probability Man, where Brian Ball <laughs> doesn't know what a computer is. But then, like, even stuff that was that's still being written about computers to this day, like, there was nothing about creating a GUI interface using Visual Basic to track the killer's IP. Mm-hmm. So it was, like, vague enough to not get into specifics, but, like, still conveyed a feeling... And I thought there were some other really funny parts here where he's also talking about how he's not a great programmer. He's got no sense of programming style. And then even as Ethan Ring plugged into the computer, it's like, they say a camel is a horse put together by a committee. Well, I'm a one-man committee, both a blessing and a, a curse, as my boss once told me. And so was the state of this machine's software. Maybe it had been a security measure. Nothing was where it logically belonged. It was buried under piles of unrelated data. It was like creeping through the back rooms of some reclusive trash fetishist castle, stacked to the ceiling with junk and old news printouts. And somehow I had to tunnel through it all to the control room, the castle keep, where he kept the supervisor programs that would let me manipulate to my heart's content. And then with a sudden rush of triumph, I realized my wish had been granted. Doctors bury their mistakes. And so do programmers, if they're lucky. Somebody's luck had just run out. So yeah, then he meets Kabir in the computer. And it turns out Kabir is a computer. Uh, while he's plugged in to the computer interface and speaking with Kabir, that's when Salad shows up. And Kabir tells him to kind of back off because he wants to do the questioning his way because he's got a direct connection to Ring's mind. But Salad does still shoot Ring in the leg. (laughs) (laughs) 
Ring and Kabir are like in each other's minds. We find out that Kabir kind of put his consciousness into the computer because he felt like that was the only way for him to really continue running his capitalist empire. He didn't think that he would like live long enough to build it up to what he wanted. And, you know, I don't think he trusted anyone else to take it over for him. And now he's unable to enjoy anything in the physical world. (laughs) And while Ring is connected and slowly bleeding to death, he starts to think about uh, Hanalor, and that starts feeding those emotions into the Kabir computer. Kabir becomes like so impressed with Ring's nobility of purpose, and I think these emotions of love or whatever that Kabir is like, fine, just you know, you can do this keyhole thing, put in the back door, but you still you have to come back once a month so we can share emotions. <laughs> And he uses Salad as, you know, the threat if he doesn't come back. Salad is supposed to let him go, but he's like, well, my orders weren't to help. So Ethan Ring drags himself back to where the the Finks are and gets rescued and ends up not quite bleeding to death. With the assumption that Salad was going to get his when he finally told Kabir what he did. And then it ends with uh, with Hannah doing a funny sexual innuendo. <laughs> they live happily ever after. The end. Well, supposedly he can live freely in this casino now. <laughs> Instead of hiding in the casino. <laughs> um, I thought this was a great cyberpunk yes it was just the right length it's not a 700 page cyberhunk cyberhunk <laughs> cyberpunk epic like altered carbon or whatever where it just drags you down and just like ethan ring this is a cyberpunk with all of its strengths and none of its weaknesses <laughs> It has the exploration of virtual reality and like the future of computers and human relations to them, humanized computers, computerized humans, infiltrating a Luddite religious cult, (laughs) some weird ancient religious stuff going on, has all that criticism of capitalism run amok, great exploration of individuality, what it means to be human and an individual and it has just the right balance of ridiculous over-the-top fun serious dark noir without being too obnoxious either way yeah a good balance and like it definitely played with those ideas in a really funny way yeah i just think You can explore all the things cyberpunk is trying to explore and talk about, and it doesn't have to have a 200-page torture scene in virtual reality. (laughs) Yeah, uh, the ways we got out of the torture scenes in this were great. (laughs) Just immediately give up your friends because you're scared about the thumbscrews. But is the threat of torture an inherent part of cyberpunk? I can't think of one where that isn't at least a key component. Yeah. The only part that I didn't like so much was the ending. I thought Ethan Ring promising Kabir to come back every two months. It doesn't feel like a very solid resolution. It, it feels, I don't know, I 
it's fine. I just don't like the way it feels. I thought it would be more fun if Kabir became a fourth personality in the body of Ethan Ring, Michael Yarrow, Ethan Eck. Yeah. And then that would also make Salad, like, shooting him and making him drag himself even more ironic. Yeah. But, I mean, I I don't know if that was opposite to what the story's trying to say or whatever. I just felt like, I promise I'll visit you every month. It just doesn't feel like a very, like, conclusive end. Yeah. It kind of, like, tied up the story with Free Thought Inc., but it didn't really resolve the whole thing with Kabir and yeah. his empire. And Yeah, it would be a good end for Kabir and for Ethan Ring, Michael Yarrow, Ethan, if they became also part of the top of this empire. I also thought there was a very funny name, the Ethnocentricities Magazine. I just <laughs> thought that was a funny thing in there. Yeah, there were so many fun little details and like a lot of stuff that like hinted at a much richer world. Like Joan D. Vinge probably could have written a giant. Sure, if it sold well, she could do a bunch of them. Yeah, but it wasn't really necessary. No, probably would not have been very good either, but it would have been money. It would have been at least as good as something like Altered Carbon. Sure. (laughs) I guess. I did like this first story, but cyberpunk kind of just isn't really my thing. Yeah, if you don't like cyberpunk, this one is not going to convince you otherwise. Yeah. Whereas the next one, Mother and Child, I think if you don't like new wave science fiction or whatever this genre is called, I think this one can convince you. Yeah, so after Fireship, like, even after that, I was really not expecting mother and child um definitely the best book i've read all year maybe last several years (laughs) um it's possible my opinion's a little bit biased since we're just coming off of reading dinosaur world um we don't usually get dumpster books with actual like themes and motifs and i don't even mean good in the context of dumpster books mother and child belongs up there with the sci-fi greats. Yeah. Uh, like it should be compared to Ursula Le Guin or Frank Herbert or Gene Wolfe. Yeah. Let's get into Mother and Child. So this one is also in the first person. We start with part one called The Smith. And we are Highwell. Is that how you would pronounce it? Highwell? Highwell? Highwell, yeah. You know, I didn't even think about how to pronounce this, but yeah. Highwell. He's our first narrator um, for all of part one. And we start with him basically laying broken and dying and remembering Edda. How do you say her name? Yeah, either Edda or Ida. But then from there, we go back to Highwell as a child. He was a Shen herder in a village of a people called the Cotain. He's a simple guy. He's um, also been orphaned. His parents were killed. They're, the word for their people, Cotain, means the mother's children. And there's another word called Nian, which means the motherless ones. So there's like another group of people on this world that they refer to as motherless. So they don't share religion or culture. But the word Nia can also mean like a specific individual 
who's lost their parents, which is what Hywell calls himself. And their their whole religion and culture is based around worshiping the mother, as in Mother Earth, being part of nature, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of... Um because everything mother does is of earth like she reacts with mudslides or floods and earthquakes and stuff if you anger her as a child highwell is also feels like very outcast and he's like off crying by himself and etta is like drawn to him because she's he says that she could like sense him weeping. He talks about how she had the second sight, which is what was drawing her to him. And there's a point they they kind of have like a little like kids argument, and she leaves. But when he runs off, he gets caught in a mudslide and buried. Um, because but, he curses the mother, and then is immediately caught. Yeah, in a mudslide again. Like her second sight is what like brings her to him and she's able to rescue him, unbury him from the mud. It's not stated right away, but there's eventually enough details that where we realize that the entire village is almost uh, entirely deaf. And Edda is one of the few people in the village who is able to hear. And so the second sight is hearing. And the few people who are able to hear are kind of considered blessed by the mother. Edda is kind of destined to become a priestess because of this ability to hear. Even Edda herself doesn't recognize hearing as hearing. It's seen as sort of a divine sense, like you're a prophet or something, if you can pull from the audible world. She doesn't have the any way of describing sounds or what it's like. So it's just this sense. Because this is explained through Hywell's perspective, who's pretty much completely deaf, um, there's like a real sense of wonder about it. So he says, To be with Edda was to be with someone who saw into other worlds. Often she started at nothing or told me what we'd find around the next turn of the path. She even knew my feelings sometimes when she couldn't see my face. She felt what the earth feels, the touch of every creature on her skin. Etta's second sight made her like a creature of the forest, for all animals know the will of the mother. And solitary like me, she spent much of the time with only the wild things for company. Often she tried to take me to see them, but they always bolted at my coming. Etta would wince and tell me to move more slowly, step more softly, breaking branches offends the earth but i could never really tell what i was doing wrong also throughout this whole part anytime there's a description of someone like how someone was speaking it also refers to how they you know were moving their hands and also like highwell talks about that in relation to how he expresses himself through his craft so like he's a smith and creates things with his hands and so he says for me words never came easy and my hands showed my feelings better by what they made from metal and wood those like ideas are really tied together kind of throughout their adolescence they flirt and eventually Etta asks him to the midsummer dance and then later she proposes i think especially from hyle's perspective there's definitely this sense that Etta is like way out of his league also being that she's like one of the most blessed by the mother seems like she could basically pick anyone right and the the priestess is supposed to mate with the strongest men of other tribes to try to split the gene pool and to get more of that blessing in their children. So her choosing him as a husband is kind of a big deal. 
Then we get to Midsummer's Day. There's some dark foreshadowing where he's talking about this being like the day that should have been their joy. And it's on this day that Etta shares with him that she's possibly pregnant. And it sounds like there's also a big problem with fertility. Um, Seems difficult for people to conceive. And Etta decides she wants to go with Hywel today uh, to travel to trade with the Nian the other group of people, they have like a relationship where they'll trade their crafts. And the Neon are very different. They don't live in harmony with the Earth because their gods are actually real and among them. Uh, So they have proof of what they should be doing. And one of those things that they're supposed to do is kill those with second sight. So they're usually burned as witches. They also have a sort of monarchy with castles and armies and a religion with cardinals and bishops and all this complicated uh, human-like bureaucracy. I will definitely describes kind of them as having this advanced technology, although we don't really know how advanced or what it what it is yet. Their gods have come from the sky. They're not based around the earth. Hywell also complains about how the Nian love to show their wealth, um, especially the ones who have the most of it. And that's why there's always this market for finely crafted jewelry from their village. Supposedly at one point in history, the Nian and Cotain lived in harmony, but that ended once the gods returned to Earth. So they kind of blame their religion on conflict between the two groups. And then Ita and Highwell are attacked and try to run away. They're chased, eventually kind of separated from the rest of the group from their village, and eventually they end up cornered at the edge of a cliff. They decide that they're going to jump to their death to avoid being burned to death by the Nian, because if they're burned to death, their spirit won't return to the earth. Right. It's not for fear of pain. It's because being burnt doesn't let your soul go to the earth mother, whereas committing suicide, especially by falling to the ground, would put you very close to mother earth. Etta hesitates and Hywell jumps and she's too slow. <laughs> So at the last minute, she's basically captured, and that's the last thing Hywell sees before he falls. And then we're in part two, the king. So in part two, we switch to our second narrator, and this is, I think, Marin, the king of Tremaine. So the word that they use for their kingdom is Tremaine. At the start, you know, his kingdom is in ruin, but he's looking back and remembering when he met Edda. This whole part uses different terms for the cities and the peoples. So instead of the Cotain, they call them the Kedini. And this is also when we have the first use of the word hearing um, to describe the second sight. Even in Tremaine, the king and most others are also deaf and have poor vision. I think the smith was also nearsighted too. 
Yeah, but in Tremaine, um, those who can afford it have lenses, which they consider a gift from the gods. So he has glasses that he uses to see. And then the church is sort of uh, under the king, but still there's their own separate thing. And they believe hearing is a curse. Because the gods told them so. Right. And the king is skeptical about these beliefs and is constantly in conflict with the church. He sort of believes like that it would be possible for the people to have children, you know, with someone who can hear in the hopes of passing on those genes and eventually leading to more and more people being able to, you know, sense things clearly with both sight and sound. Which is why he attacked. He just wants Ida to bear his child so he can have an heir with better sight and hearing. Because of her abilities with hearing, she kind of had a reputation. And when he saw her, it was just, he decided, I want her. That's part of his character is just like being the king. He can just point at things and like, I want this, bring it, bring it to me. So after this whole first part, where we got to know Edda through Hywel's eyes, we're now seeing her from the king's perspective, and it's incredibly degrading. There were a lot of quotes from the king's narrative, which just things like, I was relieved to see she wasn't the dirt-encrusted barbarian I had half expected. And then later he says, this was my wanton priestess, the fertile earth incarnate. He describes her witchy beauty and he says things like, they say a Kedany priestess will lie with any man who wants her. Um, so there's like just these descriptions of her like being this exotic, beautiful person and like really disregarding her as a person. From there, we get to the big rape scene, which is like one of our first early impressions of the king. And it really hangs over the rest of part mm -hmm. two. He doesn't let you forget it either throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Because his story is told from a future perspective where he really regrets this night and hasn't forgiven himself. Because eventually he starts to see Edda as a full human being and, you know, falls in love with her. He hasn't really forgiven himself and that shows through in the narrative. And it's hard for us to forgive him having him start from such a low <laughs> point in this narrative. Um, well, certainly too, he's an incredibly unreliable narrator. He gives himself plenty of excuses and yeah. reason and stuff. He can't really yeah. uh, believe any of the things he says. And even some of the stuff he says about, you know, how he hadn't forgiven himself because he decides later that Etta is like a woman that's worth respecting. Right. Not that he wouldn't have felt bad if she were just a, a Kedany slut, I think is what he said. It's also considering who he thinks is going to be reading this uh, right. is, is why he's putting so much emphasis on like how much he regrets it and stuff. Yeah. As opposed to maybe if, if so, he was intending someone else to read it, he wouldn't give any uh, excuse to it and, at all. Right. They're not all described, but there's basically a series of rapes and until eventually there's signs that Edda's pregnant and the king doesn't know what we know, which is that she was already pregnant to mm -hmm. begin with. And so he believes that it's with his child and Edda's not going to say anything to change that. 
uh, perception. So once that's out of the way, the king starts introducing Edda to some of their technologies from the gods. Things seem to be fairly medieval, but there's a few things that kind of stand out. Like the king has a carriage that they call a carriage, but it turns out it can also fly. Well, I think it only is medieval in the way we fill the blanks because there's a king and a cardinal and a castle and there's like some sort of animal they ride. Yeah. And a castle, but the castle could be anything. Yeah. It could be like a crystalline spire that goes up to space. Right. Uh, and the animals could be three-headed hover bears or something. Yes. But because of the language and our already presupposed ideas, we put it in this sort of medieval right. uh, style. And I think the carriage, when we do get some description of it, it's like almost spherical. It's like a flying saucer. Yeah. Then... Uh, Edda and the king also have a lot of dialogue back and forth kind of about their religion and the conflict. And, you know, Edda's insisting that there are no gods. There's only the mother. Their gods are false gods. And the king agrees with her, but tells her, you know, to keep that to herself because otherwise the church will execute her. And we find out why the king has been so skeptical. And it's apparently as a child, he saw a god in its true form. We don't know what it looked like. He just think he called it a grotesque, inhuman thing. Whereas the rest of the time, when they see a god, it's basically as like a a more perfect, beautiful human that walks around in like gold robes or something. The king still like, he has these views of the gods as not something that's holy and sacred, but just other beings who are wielding power over them um, and preventing them from being able to hear and see properly and uh, preventing them from progressing in any way. The king also takes Edda to one of their royal libraries and it turns out that she can read the same languages that these books are written in and she also meets a god for the first time here and the king and the bishop who are there kneel but Edda refuses to but instead of being offended the god is amused by it and decides that they need to allow her into the library. There's one book that's kind of described as being like a different material than the others and Edda is able to figure out that it this was something that was written before the great plague and based on this text she and the king learned that at one point everyone could hear and it's this um the plague that they refer to is something that has caused everyone to become deaf blind sterile um and other deformities There's a bunch more political intrigue between the king's wife, the queen, and the archbishop, and there's assassination attempts, and during that, Edda goes into labor, and the king survives, their son survives, and then they're raising the son, Alfieri. Soon to save the world and take us all to Flavortown. (laughs) What? Throughout the end of this part, Edda has also formed relationships with a few people, but we're only seeing these from the outside perspective of the king. There's also rumors of a new leader of the Kedeni leading attacks on Tremaine. We get 
a sprinkle of that. And then Edda and Alfieri disappear. And the king assumes they've run away to find the smith, who's the new leader. His whole kingdom ends up in what's basically a civil war between those loyal to the king and to the church. And then with the Kedeni as like a third attacker. Uh, And that's how we start part three, The God, which has our third narrator, Wiki Yaki Tam. (laughs) It's uh, Wiko Woyake, but he also goes by Tam. And he's an alien. What do you know? Uh, And he is looking back on his experiences with Ida and the time they spent together. So Tam is a xenobiologist in the colonial service. It's sort of inferred they're this big alien National Geographic uh, (laughs) colonizing force that kind of go around the planet or go around the universe cataloging aliens and assessing their threat to the universe and deciding what to be done, what's to be done. Uh, And they discovered humans after they had been hit by the plague and were already sort of defeated and decided that they were too aggressive and were going to keep them at this lower level. Yeah, they basically think humans would be incapable of coexisting with them. And if they had high technologies, they'd be way too dangerous. Which supposedly at one point they did, because you also find out here that they're not on Earth, they're on one of the moons of Jupiter, and Tam takes Ida and her child to another moon of Jupiter. Where there was a like a prior human colony that's now failed. It was totally wiped out by the plague. Among this alien species, there's also different political groups and there's like a group of what he calls conservatives who are trying to stall the human's cultural progress and then the group of liberals who want to prod the human status quo by basically doing things like giving Edda access to the restricted records, um, also inciting the cotain to war, kind of their doing. Tam is someone who was living as the coachman for the king and he's also at least at the start of part three in the conservative camp uh, basically they're removing Edda and Alfieri until until the end of this war and they sort of just spend their time together Tam does a lot of philosophizing and thinking about the status of humans and of his race and their relation and why they're keeping the humans down and sort of just uh, walks us along all the thought processes and different ideas going around it. As he's doing this, he slowly changes his mind and decides to teach Ida how to speak. So they have a sort of, it's kind of like the prime directive, but they're not very good at following it in general. He's not supposed to teach Edda how to speak. But he does partly because of his feelings where he's really questioning his role and what he's done like and the suffering that they've caused. Also, just purely out of necessity, because um, while they're living together on this colony, um, he's in an accident, loses his hand, and he's unable to sign with that hand. And the way that his body responds to that and to the new environment is to kind of 
morph shapes. And so in healing the one hand, the rest of his limbs sort of start to absorb back into his body and his whole body makeup starts to change. Their body recognizes their environment and picks a form that fits best into it. But it seems also socially driven, too. It can recognize the dominant species on a planet and mimic that, too. Right. So he's kind of becoming like one of these flying creatures that live on the planet, like a big, it's kind of like a pterodactyl or something, a big predatory bird so he realizes you know now that he's lost his hand he really needs a way to communicate and he's going to lose sign language completely very soon there are also some quotes that i wanted to share about tam watching etta raising her son still not totally understanding hearing he says her people believe that hearing was the manifestation of another's thoughts and soul. And I knew this was her first child. Though she clapped her hands to get his attention, she never made another sound for him except her laughter, only moving her hands over and over while he watched, repeating the signs for simple words. But eventually, Tam says something out loud and you know speaks to her. And at first, Edda, like grabs her child and just gets up and like (laughs) walks away and sits down farther away from him. Well, it'd be like if someone's like psychically communicating to you or something. It'd be weird. Just like, uh, I'm going to go over here now, away from you. Um, Then later he catches her like coughing and like making sounds with her throat. At first, Edda is very resistant to speak because... She feels that this voice is, you know, not from the soul. It's something that wasn't meant to be used. He tries to tell her about all of human history and how humans did know how to speak once. And he tells her about the plague. Um, And this whole time he's like trying to justify the conservative factions actions in kind of keeping this knowledge from them and keeping them from advancing any further. Edda's pretty upset And just, like, points out, you know, the pain and suffering that they've caused to her people. How many of them have been burned as witches for being able to hear and things like that. Also, during this period of time, Tam has a child. Uh, His race produce kind of like that one guy in Futurama where he just has to have feelings of love (laughs) and then he gets pregnant. (laughs) But he doesn't tell Ita about the child, and then Ita finds it. And it's like, oh god! And just, like he starts hitting it with a yeah. stick. <laughs> and Tam like comes running, like, no, my child! And like, but then they bond together as parents. They can talk about going to soccer practice and stuff, <laughs> uh, and their kids become friends, kind of as much as like toddlers can. But the Smith wins the war. And he's allowed to take them back. But he wants to keep Ida's child because for some reason this will unite his people and the humans and make them able to live in harmony if he's able to raise her child. Yeah, so it was a little vague on how exactly that was supposed to work, but he basically says like, This is the child of unity in a broken world. And he's the son of Highwell, but everyone also believes that he's the heir to Tremaine. And he's been raised by Tam 
you know, Tam wants to like give him all of their knowledge and then have him come back and reunite things. And then there's an emotional reunion. Yeah, it it ends with a what would be a tearjerker if Jones' writing wasn't so matter of fact statement. Well, it was because it was from Tam's perspective at that point. Right, yeah. But basically she's thinking, how can the Smith take me back when I hesitated to jump and he jumped? Like, will he not forgive me? And I've given away his trial, but he doesn't even know that. But then it doesn't matter. They've seen each other after so long and they just so happy to be with each other. Everything else goes away. Yeah, well, this whole time she's been blaming herself for being a coward and not jumping. But Highwell has been blaming himself for being a coward and jumping and leaving her behind. Right. But also the this whole part is sort of couched in the fact that Tam is the narrator because it points out again and again these aliens don't really understand human nature. Yeah. Uh, and it's brought really clear when he just asks to have her baby. Yeah. And is confused why she's upset. Like, you could just have more. <laughs> yeah. We'll help you. We'll make it <laughs> yeah. easier. So there's a little bit of that, too, uh, at the end. But even so, it certainly does feel good for them to get together in the end. I think Tam also, even as little as he does understand her, like... He's the only, I think, alien who's, like, lived as themselves with a human for this long. And so the, like, the rest of them, especially, like, the conservative group has, like, no understanding whatsoever of human experience. So I think another reason that, you know, bringing the child back with him will kind of help bring them back together, I guess. It's Paul Mwadib. (laughs) The one raised by the Fremen. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> well, do you have additional oh, thoughts? We got, we got so many here. <laughs> um, so the big metaphor here is colonialism and post-colonialism. This is an indigenous people taken over, controlled, exploited by one much more technologically advanced sort of kept down out of fear or just misunderstanding. The way it's told really sells that. The way it's always from someone else's perspective telling Ida's story, where Ida is the, you know, the goddess, the representation of these abused people, and she can't tell her own story. Her story's being written by the captors and the victors. Right. It can also be spread to plenty of other things like feminism fits right in there with all of her stories told by her male captors, either her husband, the king, or this like xenobiologist that's like using her to represent things. Yeah, and it's clear like all of them have a major barrier to understanding her. Right. It just, it works so well how everything in the book pushes forward this idea. Nothing is wasted uh, so much even so the the tense it's always in the past tense it's always this person looking back as if telling a history it even kind of comes up in other little ways like there's like sometimes they're they're talking about the initial colonization too because there was another species that was the dominant species on the planet that basically got wiped out right to form that colony um and then there's there's a little bit too in the end how with the xenobiologist how it's actually not so clear whether he's changing his mind 
or uh, him spending time with Ida and his like morphing kind of changes his mind, which puts into question all these gods that are spending their time on the planet with the humans are picking up these aggressive or imperialistic ideas from being with humans and being humans since they kind of morph to fit their environment. A little bit hinting at like, is imperialism a human trait? This is a little bit in there that you could explore with the way the aliens adapt. Right. I also really liked the portrayal of deafness and hearing throughout the whole book. Like it was introduced so gradually and where we're relating to the deaf characters. And again, with Highwell, that whole sense of wonder and the way when he's trying to describe hearing, he can only describe it in terms of seeing. And then anytime there's like speaking, I think in the King's section, he said things like, I was fascinated by the motions of her hands, so quick and bold compared to the refined gestures of the court poets, whose graceful imported romances usually left me yawning. A boring way to talk with your <laughs> hands. And like, the king also brings up comparisons between noble speech and common speech, where the commoners use sign language, but the nobles can also use lip reading, even though they don't make the sounds, mm -hmm. they're still... Um, Which makes you think, what even are their lips doing and what, what lip movements mean certain signs and stuff? Yeah, um, but that's like something that Edda is not able to understand, so he can use noble speech with his whatever, <laughs> his king's men. And then um, there's even mention of poets and stuff Yeah, using their hands really well. So as I was saying with the whole colonialism metaphor is Ita is obviously the protagonist, but <laughs> someone else is telling her story every time. And I really like just the, the differences of the three narrators. The Smith is always concerned with what's right in front of his face. He's nearsighted. He works with his hands, but that goes far in his descriptions. He's always describing what's right in front of him. If Ida's there, he's talking about Ida. He's describing her. He's describing the people around him. He doesn't see the greater world. Right. Because he can't see 10 feet ahead of him, but also it's not part of his world. Yeah. Um, so he's always talking about emotions, people, feelings, and just what's right in front of him. Yeah. And then the next one is the king. And our scope widens a little bit. We see a country. He's talking about intrigue. He's talking about politics. He always distances himself from his immediate experience. When he talks about the rape, he it's like a step back, you know? You don't right. get all the details. It's as if he is a character in his own story that he's telling you. Um, and he's always talking about people removed from him, doing actions like in the court, in the church, his soldiers... Uh, the war outside the castle. And then he also explores a little bit of history and the effects of the gods. And then we get to the xenobiology and the scope gets even farther where he's talking about ethics. He's talking about um, psychology. He's talking about what it means to be a human versus an alien. All his descriptions, when he's like seeing things, it's always of a landscape where he's looking into the distance uh, yeah. His description of architecture is never what's in the room. It's like the whole ruined city. And, you know, just talking about imperialism and, and exploitation and all that. Yeah, when I was reading it, I definitely had this feeling of like 
kind of spiraling outward where we're just getting more and more of this world. It like sneaks up on you so gradually, but from when we start with Highwell and it's like his biggest concern is like, is he going to have a, a girl at the midsummer dance? And it's like, I was not expecting to get back as far as this, right. where, where we get with the xenobiologist. And it's just all Ida being a small story that represents the whole of this experience or whatever, whatever Joan's trying to tell with this story. So this book fits right in with all the other writers in the new wave science fiction thing. I talked about it briefly the one time I talked about Gene Wolfe a couple episodes back, but new wave was basically a response to, you know, originally sci-fi was how do we get up into the stars and make colonies on other planets? And then the new wave is, okay, we got a colony. What does that, how does that affect <laughs> us? What does that actually do? And right. turns out colonies are fucked up. <laughs> Um, so this book fits right in with Ursula Le Guin, Gene Wolfe, Frank Herbert. I also wanted to compare it to Octavia Butler because this felt very similar to Dawn and... Right. The Lost Episode. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> we were supposed to do an episode about Dawn. Um, and the whole, um, yeah, Xenogenesis series, I think. Right, because that was all about aliens and humans. Like, basically meeting. aliens coming to Earth after nuclear war and rescuing them, but on the aliens' terms and, like, regenerating humans from, like, yeah, aliens becoming pregnant with humans, <laughs> all that. And then Frank Herbert more on like the economic imperialism side, really talking about what is it to have an empire in space? What is it to go to another planet and make it yours? And what does that do to the planet? What does that do to you? And really thinking through all these effects. And then Ursula Le Guin on the more social side, how do people interact in these kinds of situations? It puts into question gender relationships, how people relate, uh, and how people relate with other thinking sentient beings, how they treat them, how you treat something that looks at life completely differently than you. And then, man, this book has so much from Gene Wolfe. It's, yeah. it's like this and Fifth Head of Cerberus are the same book told from two different perspectives. It's <laughs> There's the same characters, there's the same people. It's crazy. Uh, this and the Book of the New Sun have so much in relation to each other, down to the gods are just like the gods in Book of the New Sun. Oh. I don't know. It's it's crazy how similar they are and then how totally differently they choose to tell the story, which I wanted to ask you how you felt about part three oh. in Mother and Child. Like in terms of like really explaining everything? Right. I understands purpose in the like the structure Joan has created of this story but to me it felt like I had figured out most of the stuff already and I didn't need the nitty-gritty details and for it to be told to me like I'm a child um I think you might have had an advantage in reading so much Gene Wolfe already I didn't think it was over explained and the details are like built up so gradually it's like at whichever point you finally suspect what's going on or mm. catch on to like what they're talking about i felt like 
probably still worthwhile to like go back and reread. Certainly, I think this is worth reading a second time. Yeah. And then also just like once you do catch on, it's like, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, but I just, I don't know. <laughs> did, did you feel it drag a little bit in part three at all? I think maybe part three was also just a little bit slower to read because we're reading from the, this like nerd yeah a xenobiologist who has very little emotional connection to anything in the story that we've cared about up until this point mm-hmm. and so it's like starting from that point and then trying to figure out like uh, trying to wait for him to develop feelings for Edda and her child and right and what we're doing in that part is waiting yeah so there's no action. yeah so Edda is just twiddling her thumbs, raising this kid and waiting. Be- and we're also like, we're left during that chapter of like, what's going on with the war? Is the Smith actually Highwell? Did he survive? Like, we're there's all these things that we were hoping to find out about. And she's just stolen from the planet, told to wait here until everything else resolves itself. I don't necessarily think that part three was bad or and I definitely don't have a better way like a better way to have done it. And it certainly fits the structure and everything else. I just it was not as enjoyable. And the high point was the beginning of part three when like, hey, we're on the moon. (laughs) Uh, And that was like if it ended there, that would be great. But it wasn't like part three was bad. But after that, it was Kind of just like a slow walk down a hill to the end, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it really didn't feel that long. And the book itself is only... It's like 90 pages or something. Yeah. Certainly the weakest part of this is the greatest part of any book we've ever read for this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) And my copy of this actually had a little sort of epilogue afterward from Joan, where she talked about writing it a little bit, and she said she had a dream that she read the story in, like, a collection, like a like an analog magazine type thing, mm. and after her dream, she wrote it all out and eventually got it published in one of those magazines. That's funny. I don't believe it at all, though. That's, like, <laughs> such a writer thing to say. <laughs> Um, yeah, I can't imagine her just writing this in one draft either. Like, no way. Yeah, there's there's too many moving parts and everything connects with itself. It's like so carefully crafted and like it's written beautifully. Isn't that a difference between the books we normally read on this (laughs) podcast where it's very clear, like it was a first draft. They didn't even spell check it. Most of these books, we're lucky if we get a coherent metaphor. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, she talked about fans of the story also uh, referring to it as a fantasy story. Hmm. Yeah, she's got that same reaction. She's like, this is strictly science fiction. She feels like people kind of misunderstand it because of the, like, kings and castles sort of. I guess she did need that part three. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think so. Um, I think her last thought was that Tam is her personal favorite of all of her alien characters in any of her works. Hmm. 
Maybe that's why we spend so much time with I him. I guess so. <laughs> I did notice that both the stories in this collection, identity is a key theme. Uh, if there's anything linking these two, they're both explorations on what it is to be a person, what is personality, what is like, what's the separation between your brain and your body, what makes you you and not someone else. Uh, and then how do you relate to the world and what do you show? Like, what face do you show? All that kind of stuff. That's, right. that's I do not think whoever collected these two stories had that in mind. <laughs> but it is interesting. Yeah, well, I just kind of felt like Fireship was a Fireship for mother and child. <laughs> I thought Fireship was good. Yeah. Uh, even better than a lot of what is considered a great cyberpunk. Uh-huh. This is far and away better than that. But yeah, it certainly doesn't hold a candle to mother and child. Who do you think this book is for? <laughs> I feel like we've already kind of stated our feelings on it. If you're interested in the new wave of science fiction, Ursula Gwynn, Gene Wolfe, Frank Herbert, Octavia Butler, yep. you should read Mother and Child. Yes. Um, Strongly recommend. Yeah. Part of what I like about doing this podcast and exploring dumpster books is the idea of finding that diamond in the rough but the diamond in the rough isn't like a good book it's like <laughs> oh that was like a fun story or oh that wasn't so like that was good That's i enjoyed an that interesting one idea yeah that one didn't uh cause me pain to read <laughs> uh i i never thought that i would read a book that i felt deserves to be one of the great sci-fi books. I even think if, and I don't think Joan Vinge is a bad writer or anything, but I think if artsied up her prose a little bit, made it a little less plain. What? What? I understand that it's supposed to be the voice of these other characters, but... What? No way. I I thought even, like, her writing style is great. I'm just saying... That Mother and Child could be on the level of not just being good for sci-fi, but it could have been brought up to a level of just being good for literature. Uh. And uh, and that's what I mean. I don't mean that she's she has like a clunky style or anything. I'm just saying it's close enough where this could be <laughs> like a literary work in quotations, you know? Right. Yeah. I would definitely check out her other works. I'm shocked that neither of us have heard of her before. Right. How, how did I miss this? The problem is those other books still have those awful YA covers. <laughs> Joan D. Vinge needs a better illustrator. Right. <laughs> this cover is awesome, but... But it's also <laughs> terrible. Very misleading. There are no aliens like that. It's like the aliens... From Mother and Child got trapped in the 70s, and then <laughs> that's the cover. <laughs> and they're on vacation at a casino. Right. Well, I think that's it for Fireship. If you'd like to join us next month, there's no need to read ahead because we are doing a live reading of Lone Wolf Fight from the Dark, a role playing adventure. <laughs> You can contact us at dumpsterbookclub at gmail.com or join our group on Goodreads. <laughs>